Today on Good in Theory, private government, bad working conditions, and pissing yourself for freedom. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good in Theory. Today on Good in Theory, we have Elizabeth Anderson. She is a professor of philosophy at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. She's the author of three books, including her latest, which is called Private Government. We're going to be talking about that today. And thank you for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. And to jump right in, what's your target in this book? What is the viewpoint that you're arguing against? So my target is an ideology that calls itself libertarianism, or maybe, you know, free markets in general, free market capitalism. And um, what they officially say about themselves, the advocates of this view, is that, well, all we want is free markets, and then everybody has freedom of choice, and they can choose whatever they want, right, where to work what to buy and so forth. And so that maximizes freedom. And my critique is that libertarianism is misrepresenting the society we live in, which is not really so much about markets. Markets are just the conduits by which people are channeled into these little private governments at work. We spend most of our waking lives at work if we're not retired or Mm -hmm. children. And what happens to us at work? Well, then we lie under the government of our employer who orders us around while we're at work pretty minutely and often Uh enough even also controls what we get to do off duty. Right. So let me just pause and uh, take that apart a little bit. Just take it piece by piece. So the libertarianism view is that we should have free markets as in the government should stay out of private business. Less regulation, maybe fewer taxes, um, not so many labor laws, that kind of thing. And the reason they do this is because the fear that they're working against is a kind of tyranny or domination by government. The government's going to get in our business, tell us what to do, and really, we should be free. And if we're in the private sector, that's up to private citizens and like private market actors to decide what they're going to do. And um, the liberty in libertarianism seems to be the liberty from any government exper- uh, interference. So it's about free market uh, capitalism. Is that is that right? That's how it represents itself, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and this argument... What are some of the public policies and stuff that it is used to justify? Well, deregulation is a big one, deregulating the market, especially in the context of labor laws, getting rid of labor unions, right? If the uh-huh. employer doesn't want it, they don't have to negotiate with labor unions, right? <laughs> they can pressure fire workers who want to organize the workplace. Because unions would just interfere with the liberty of individual workers to strike the kind of bargains that are good for them. Is that? That's the theory, right? Yeah, that's the <laughs> <Yes>. theory. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, in reality, what workers face when they're not unionized is 
a contract of adhesion. That is, the terms are all dictated by the employer. And unless you're somebody like a free agent in baseball who has mm-hmm. extremely rare talents and can negotiate a specifically tailored package just for them, you're just going to accept, you're just going to have to accept whatever they offer because right. they're not going to negotiate. Course, <laughs> most of us are not uh, hot free agent baseball players. Yeah. I think. I think most of the listeners will at least be passingly familiar with the view that you're describing. Um, We've heard it somewhere before, but who are some big names that are out there defending this position today? Well, Tyler Cowen has a very popular podcast, uh, and he Uh was one of the respondents in my book, Private Government. Although lately he has been inching away Mm -hmm. from a pure free market view. Well done, well done. (laughs) (laughs) Although not so much on the employment context, what's really been moving him away from it is the patent inability of private businesses and private enterprise to really manage climate change, which is a global Mm. crisis that requires pretty powerful state action to cope with. So, So Tyler Cowen, you see it from politicians probably all the time. Well, the Freedom Caucus... Uh-huh. Paul Ryan, people like that right. in Congress, they're very powerful. And I guess if you hear anyone calling themselves a classical liberal, that's probably Yes, that classical liberalism is another term that mm-hmm. advocates use to describe themselves. Yes. It, and so this view, it's really popular, really powerful. I mean, I grew up in the sort of closing act of the Cold War, right? And so it seemed um, that we only had a choice between two things. It was either this, you know, uh, capitalism, freedom, America, baseball, or uh, Soviet dictatorship, borscht, ice hockey, you know, all the bad things, (laughs) right? Yeah, Um, no, that's exactly right. I mean, it was really the fall of communism in, like, starting around 1989 that led to this view this libertarian free market view that there's only right this is there's no alternative to free mm-hmm. market capitalism that's what we have and we got to live with it yes right it was it was the end of history correct yeah. that was yeah. the theory <laughs> <laughs> so so i want to get i want to now that we have that opposition between the libertarian view versus communist dictatorship i want to just put a pin in that dichotomy for now uh and have you take us back to where this sort of free market, libertarian, classical, liberal view came from and, and what it was like when it started? So who are the intellectual touchstones that people reach back to to justify this, this view of the world? Yeah, so you see advocacy of the free market from the 17th century levelers in England mm-hmm. who are a very pro-worker group. They're actually workers who were demanding a Republican constitution, that's a small r Republican, that is getting rid of the monarchy and the House of Lords, <laughs> having a democracy, really. Um, through Adam Smith and the early classical political economists. Mm-hmm. But what they had in mind was a very different system than what is called libertarianism today. So take Adam Smith, the great creator of economic theory, one of the great founders. So Smith is thought today to be an advocate of libertarianism, as we call it today. But if you go back and read what he said, he actually 
thought that there shouldn't be corporations. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> he thought corporations were just um, instruments whereby the executives of the firm stole everybody's money in all kinds yeah. of scams. <laughs> there are a couple of examples I can think of. Yeah. yeah. Well, in his day, it was the South Sea bubble. Today, it's mm-hmm. cryptocurrency, right? Right. <laughs> so so Adam, Adam Smith, he's this figure that free market guys are always reaching back to and saying, look, you know... Uh, it's the most efficient way. This is freedom for all. This is how we have a wealthy society. It's the wealth of nations is because we can have a free market. But Smith didn't really think this, or well, he thought so this in some Smith, kind of qualified way, or so what? We have to consider the system that Smith was arguing against, in which he thought free markets would be superior to. Mm-hmm. So he was arguing against mercantilism and feudal lordship. Right. And so his argument is, if you go back to the feudal times, everybody was in subjection to the landlord, right? They're a tenant Mm -hmm. who could be, you know, abused by their landlord. They're paying out almost all their income in rents. Or there's some kind of domestic servant inside the Lord's household. They have to kowtow and cater. And the lords themselves, they're they're getting mountains of money in rents, but they have no other way to spend it, as he put it, than just by maintaining all of these dependents on his manor, uh-huh. right? So he maybe entertains lots of people, <laughs> feeds them, and so forth, but they all have to obey him, every last right. word. And they even, you know, in the feudal era, they even had their own private armies. They did have to swear loyalty to the king, but really they're running their own militias, sort of. So you've got these uh, feudal lords and everyone else is a private servant. Could you just draw the distinction distinction between this system and the free market system that Smith is arguing for? It's definitely, there's very, markets are very primitive in those days. Uh And, And because really the manor is a, pretty self-sufficient unit of economics, right? They Mm -hmm. grow all their own food. They're eating everything they produce pretty much right there. And then Smith talks about the rise of commercial society with trade and, you know, spices and silk Uh coming from China and Asia and so forth. You get the rise of international trade. And suddenly, as Smith puts it, Everything for myself and nothing for anyone else is the vile maxim of the uh-huh. masters of humanity, right? He's talking about the lords who are so greedy and vain, right? They don't want to spend their money anymore maintaining dependence. They want to spend uh-huh. it on fancy jewelry and, you know... Saffron every day. Yeah, this kind yeah. of stuff, right? And maybe a ball gown for their wife or something like this. Um, but in order to spend it all on themselves, what that means is then they are demanding crafts, right? They're, they're selling, they're buying stuff from retailers and craftsmen Uh in the cities. Those people are liberated, right? Because now instead of being domestic servants, they're off there, they own their own little shop, they're independent, Mm -hmm. right? And that rise of commercial society where the lords now have to buy all their stuff from shops rather than having slaves or servants produce it for them on their manor. Right. 
right? It's much better to be an independent businessman <laughs> than it is to be, you know, a servile subject of your local lord. So they, right. those people are liberated, right? And so is this, this is uh, Smith's vision, yes, right? But it's the that we have part, this commercial society yes. where it's all independent craftsmen and farmers trading with each other instead of all of us right. kowtowing to the Lord. Exactly. And so the other side of this is, of course, the agricultural sector. And he argues there, too, that market society, commercial society, liberated them because mm -hmm. the Lord's... Uh, wanted to raise the rents so that they could spend more money on themselves. But the farmers had some bargaining power and they said, well, if you do that, then we want long-term leases. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they could even buy their own land. And then they would be independent of the Lord. So in both the agricultural sector and mm -hmm. in the manufacturing and co commercial sector, you see the rise of a large class of people uh -huh. who are independent of the rich and they run their own business. And what Smith's vision was to pursue that to the max. And right. the way to do that was to abolish the inheritance laws that kept the large estates locked up in the hands of about 30,000 English families. Mm -hmm. So his, his idea was that if you free up the market and have commercial society, that's actually going to suck all the money out of these rich lords and distribute it so that more people can be independent instead of dependent on them. It frees them, basically. Yes, exactly. And if you break up the large estates, if you enable them to be broken up, then they will be broken up because the lords are not good farmers. <laughs> right. Right. They don't pay attention to the details needed to maintain a really efficient farming operation. They've got hunting and drinking to do. Uh, why, why are they going to worry exactly, about farming? Exactly, right? right. Yeah, they're busy, you know, hunting down those foxes, right? Yeah. <laughs> and playing cards and things like that. <laughs> right. And so <clears throat> then they would lose their estates because they're bad businessmen. Mm -hmm. And the land would fall in the hands of the most efficient producer, who was the yeoman farmer. Right. And, and so everybody would be independent at that stage. And this is, this is also sort of Lincoln and early founders' vision of uh, America, maybe Jefferson, that it would be made up of these yeoman farmers, of these independent smallholders. Yeah. Who would all be free? Is that a... Absolutely. And America really was, at the time, in the 18th century, the utopia uh -huh. for people who aspire to a society of free and equal people, at least for white people, of course. We have mm -hmm. to keep mm -hmm. in mind that America, you know, you had all yeah. these slaves, and especially in the South, and of course, the land itself Right. What enabled all this freedom for white settlers was that the land was yanked away from the indigenous mm -hmm. people. So you can't think that it's freedom and equality for everybody. But in Lincoln's vision, in his uh, stop speech for the 1860 presidential campaign, mm -hmm. he basically says that the ideal is. First of all, you have free labor, right? So you have to abolish slavery. He's right out yeah. there about that. And the second thing you have to do is to be truly free, you have to be self-employed. He's absolutely uh -huh. explicit about this. And that was the origin of the Homestead Acts. 
right? right? You give away this free land and then anybody who's a farmer, they don't have to be just a hired hand. They can get their own farm and then they'll be mm -hmm. free and independent. And then in and the marketplace, people will meet as equals because everyone is basically a small business person, right? And they uh -huh. trade with each other as equals. Neither side can call the shots. Uh-huh. In terms of economic theory, you have perfect competition, right? There are so many right. different individuals provide, you know, selling the wheat and the corn and like the farm yeah. implements and so forth. If, if you're a butcher, I'm a baker, someone else is a farmer, we can work something out that's mutual, mutually beneficial. And, and we'll have we will to. recognize our, each other as equals in those transactions because uh -huh. nobody is so big and powerful and rich that they can call the shots on anybody else. Okay, so great, great theory. You know, let's free up the market so we can all be independent yeoman farmers or craftsmen. Uh, why didn't Why didn't that work out? What happened? <laughs> the industrial <laughs> revolution happened. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, S Smith wasn't. He had a good idea, which is that if you get to keep a hundred percent of the fruits of your labor, you're going to work mm -hmm. really, really hard, and you'll be industrious and frugal. And efficient, right? You're not going to waste any yeah. money, right? Because <laughs> you get to keep all the profits of your own labor. That's the argument for universal self-employment. But what he failed to consider was that economies of scale are a real thing. And what all that technology brought in by the Industrial Revolution, things like the spinning jenny, Mm -hmm. And later on in the Industrial Revolution, massive engines that are running, you know, you know, hundreds of machines, right? <clears throat> Is that economies of scale are real. Uh -huh. And then an individual person can't purchase those giant machines. You need to have some rich capitalists buy these things and build a factory. Mm -hmm. And then the workers are going to be employees of the uh -huh. capitalist. And so they're no longer going to have that independence. They're going to have to take orders from the boss. Right. So so the free market leading to everyone's freedom works in a situation of relative equality if, you know, we were so lucky as to all be independent businessmen. But as soon as you have industry and you need to have these big concentrations of capital in rich people and then employees, that creates an imbalance of power. Right. Exactly. Yes. And so, I mean, that that brings us into, I think, uh, you know, the title of your book private government um so what do you what do you mean by that in this in this context yeah so <clears throat> i define private government as government that is unaccountable to the people being governed mm -hmm. right it's like somebody's ordering you around and and they're not accountable to you <laughs> right and, and so private government is the opposite of democracy in democracy uh -huh. yes you have you have office holders who do pass laws that order people around. But if you don't like those laws, then you don't you can boot them out at the next election, right? You right. can boot out the legislators at the next election and and elect people who are going to change the laws, right? In democracies we're free, uh private government is like a dictatorship or an absolute monarchy where it's just the private business of the leader, how to run the place and everyone else doesn't have its say. But we're not talking about that in your book. When you're talking about private government, you're saying that in the workplace, when we go to our jobs, we are living under a kind of private government that's kind of like an absolute monarchy. 
right? Yeah, it's not quite absolute, you know, in uh-huh. in modern capitalism, but I think we underestimate how much power mm-hmm. employers have over us. Certainly in the workplace, there's no question, yeah. right? Our our work lives are minutely governed by our bosses for the mm-hmm. most part, right? So that even if you're, say, a customer service representative, you have a script that you have to read and mm-hmm. they're monitoring every word. And for all kinds of other office work, you know, maybe there's a camera looking at you or a keystroke logger and uh-huh. they're checking on what you're browsing to make sure that you're not like playing solitaire or something. <laughs> right. right. Like every last moment, there's time and motion control of your bodily motions in Amazon uh-huh. warehouses and on the factory floor. Right. I mean, our lives are and the pace of work is determined by our boss. Right. So everything we do is very minutely governed when we're at work. Right. So at work, we are being uh, governed at this minute, detailed level, more detailed than any actual government would dare to try to exercise their control over our lives. But there's a difference, right? Because your boss can't throw you in jail or kill you. So why do we have to obey them? What means do they have at their disposal to exercise control over us? Well, there's the penalty of being fired, Mm. sometimes being demoted, uh, often enough just being yelled at (laughs) Uh for not doing, you know, for not working hard enough or whatever (laughs) and not doing things precisely as the boss wants. And how does all that stuff link back to the concept of private, unaccountable government? Well, that that is a consequence of private Uh government. Right. The Amazon workers, even if they're guaranteed a 15 minute break, those warehouses are so big, they don't even have time to get to the bathroom. And then it's not a real break if your whole time is just running to try to use the toilet. Right. And so some of them end up having to pee in bottles. Mm -hmm. Same with truckers. Right. They're under such an intense schedule, you know, Amazon delivery people, whatever. That they uh, they don't have time. I mean, it's it's humiliating. It's undignified to be forced to do that. I think that's a really interesting point. So these unaccountable forms of private government, they don't just result in practices that are really bad for workers, the terrible working conditions. It's also humiliating, kind of degrading to work under these conditions. Absolutely. And also just being yelled at all the time. Yeah. It's really bad. I mean, a lot of bosses are very verbally abusive, emotionally abusive. And they wouldn't be able to get away with this if... If workers had a union Uh (laughs) or some other voice in the workplace, right? Right. Representation. What what I'm I'm getting at is I am very sympathetic to this view. But to take the view of a libertarian, I might say, hey, look... These conditions are not really so bad. After all, if I'm an Amazon boss, I could say there's some of the best wages for unskilled workers in the area. People are free to work there. They're free to quit at any time. So if they don't like it, it's not a violation of their freedom. They could just go get another job. Um, So what would you say to that objection? Well, a couple things. One is, is that exit might not be so easy. So a uh-huh. lot of firms make you uh, 
sign a contract, a non-compete agreement, which means that if you quit your job, you can't be employed in the same market uh, for maybe, you know, several years. Okay. So they basically now have kidnapped your human capital, your skills... (laughs) in that industry and you got to do something else entirely so you have to how enforceable are those surely surely an amazon warehouse worker can go work in another warehouse no it is true and amazon that's true but we have you know jimmy john's the sandwich maker makes people right like what are you sure you can't you can't go to subway after jimmy john's Officially, no, you've signed a non-compete agreement it's ridiculous Uh what you can't make sandwiches at another place or even like summer camps, like you can't be a summer summer camp counselor at a different camp. Uh-huh. I mean, it's ridiculous. Summer camps. Yes, it's that is absurd. astonishing to me. This is for teenagers, isn't it? Like, yes, it, they're far more pervasive than you might think. Okay, and, and of course, I, in the tech industry outside of California, where they've banned non compete agreements, but mm-hmm. in, in most other states, the tech industry. And even doctors are under non-competes. Then why not just, if I see a non-compete clause in my contract, why do I take the job? To me, the free market argument, it's going to say that employers will offer contracts that are good enough to get people to take them. And it's just an offer, right? People are free well, to take them or leave them. Just... So why does offering a bad job to someone violate their freedom when they don't have to accept it. Because we have to think about the role of the state in according such power to employers in the first place. So what does it even make it possible for them to insist on a non-compete agreement? Mm-hmm. It's, it's because the state has handed them all the chips and bargaining power relative to workers. Right. Right. And, and so in a way that the state has already put its thumbs on the scale to give employers this kind of power. But the state should I I think that the state should rebalance the scales. OK, and, so how? Yeah. How do know, we do that? What? Well, I mean, California has banned non-compete agreements. Uh huh. You know, the tech industry say it'll destroy tech. Well, I, I'm sorry. You know, tech is very, very strong in California. It hasn't really been damaged by now. What, by- what was the argument for for getting rid of those who destroy tech? Well, they thought that, you know, unless we have control over our talent, uh-huh. that they can take, you know, ideas that they've been developing at one firm and bring them to another firm. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And they're claim that this is all their intellectual property. Right. That's sort of the theory. OK, so we want to get rid of non-compete contracts and all sorts of bad workplace conditions. And the reason they exist is because of private government, because bosses are unaccountable to their workers. And we know that we solve the problem of private government in in the state sector by having democracy, right? We, we get rid of the monarch and we, we have democracy. So how do we solve the problem of private government in the work world? Yeah, so my biggest argument is we should bring in co-determination. Meaning? So that's, that's a model that was developed in Europe, primarily in Germany. They did the most experimentation on this 
even before World War II, but more mm-hmm. importantly, after World War II. Um, <clears throat> the basic idea is that once a corporation hits a certain number of employees, it has to let workers into management. So co-determination right. means joint management by workers and the representatives of the investors, right? Which would be from Uh the managerial sector. But they would jointly manage the shop floor, the conditions, right? right? And and so there's certain stuff that happens in America that is absolutely unknown in in Germany and France and the Scandinavian countries. I'm Canadian. We love to hear how awful it is. Oh, it's like, (laughs) oh yeah, Canada is like way better. It's unbelievable. America is this insanely wealthy country uh-huh. and their american exceptionalism is a real thing in the sense, but not in the way americans think <laughs> oh like rah rah we're uniquely great no in fact american labor conditions are off the charts worse mm-hmm. than every other peer country in the world in there's no ways? right to paid vacations you know, in France, you get you get the whole month of August off. In Denmark, yeah. you get five weeks off paid vacation, guaranteed. In the Netherlands, you get the government will actually stick a few thousand dollars in your bank account mm-hmm. just so that you can afford a vacation. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. yeah. Every place where this exists, people really like it a lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> But also, but maybe that's why America's so rich. You know, the hustle never sleeps. (laughs) Yeah, but who has all that money is the question. (laughs) (laughs) It's generally not the workers. (laughs) And so I was actually, I I have a friend who is an engineer and, you know, he's working in the United States. uh, But he, he worked at a German engineering company for a while. And mm-hmm. I asked him, you know, what was the difference? So think about it. Engineers are very well paid, you know, and have a lot of prestige, you know, yeah. in the United States. But I knew that in Germany, they have co-determination. And I said, did co-determination make a difference in your work life? And he said it was unbelievable. Uh-huh. <laughs> he said, they really respect us in Germany. Uh-huh. <laughs> like he... Experienced this before. I mean, he thought like it's kind of like a fish in water. Like they're not even aware of the water, right? Uh-huh. And finally, so, it, he goes yeah, to yeah, Germany go and he sees how much respect the engineers have compared to say engineers at Boeing, uh-huh. who kept on telling, you know, they're working on the Boeing Max and they kept on telling management, "Hey, this this airplane is dangerous. It's not ready to ship. We have to fix a lot of things or else it's going to yeah. crash." And management just said, shut up, none of your business. Mm-hmm. We got to ship these planes, meet your deadline. We don't care about your complaints. It's our, you know, our decision. Yeah. And it, the truth is, is that when those planes crashed, the workers, the engineers were absolutely traumatized. You should have read their responses when the New York Times broke the story of the Boeing Mac Max crash. I remember mm-hmm. reading it intently, the comments which are coming in from Boeing engineers saying basically that they feel that they are they've been betrayed by the corporation because they wanted to do a good job on this plane and they yeah. were just told to meet deadlines and shut up. They they felt 
traumatized by being ringed into an enterprise oh, that they knew yeah. was gonna like kill people <laughs> they didn't want to <laughs> do that <laughs> right and, and in germany that would never happen uh-huh. it's not just that they have a better regulatory regime it's that the workers wouldn't they wouldn't put up with stuff because like this. co-determination means that they have a say in the decisions and they would have never that's right allowed that to happen yeah. um Actually, I would like to bring this back to the conceptual distinction you're making between private and public government. Because what is the difference conceptually when we have co-determination, when workers do have a say, that makes it, um, you know, let, it's, it's not private government anymore. It's not the kind of tyrannical rule by bosses right, that yeah, we're worried because about. Because <clears throat> it's precisely that workers have a voice in whatever rules are going to govern them at work. Right. And they can change those rules because Uh conditions on the shop floor are the outcome of the, of basically some kind of consensus Mm -hmm. between the representatives of the investors and the workers themselves. And if the workers don't like their own representatives, they can boot them out and elect new representatives. If this is, if, as you say, there's American exceptionalism, and these kinds of working conditions are unheard of in the rest of the developed world, why is that? What 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 are you guys thinking? Like why <laughs> why why in America do people believe in this more than any anywhere else? Even though, look, it's I'm exaggerating because in the UK and Canada, there's very strong libertarian ideological strains. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. But America is really the home. Oh yeah, <laughs> right? number one, we're absolutely exporting. in this. Right. America exports this ideology to other countries. I mean, frankly, I just have to say that I'm shocked. You know, here I am in Michigan and Canada's really just next door. It's only a Mm -hmm. few miles away. And I'm shocked by some of the stuff that Canadians swallow that's been exported by the United States. Oh, we have we have. What I tell people is that, you know, Americans like, oh, Canada's nice. It's better. It's it's not. It's just. Everything that's dumb about America, we also have. We just do it at like smaller scale and with less self confidence. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying, you had a leader who wanted to import America's carceral state. Yeah. I thought, what? It's like, just as America's realizing what an unmitigated catastrophe it is, Canada's starting to think, hmm, maybe it's a good idea to jail oh, yeah. more Smaller people. Smaller scale, less <laughs> self-confidence, and like 5 to 10, 20 years later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but really, you just, look, you just look south of the border, you see what a disaster it's been. Yeah. Um, but why? This whole Adam Smith uh, independent producer utopia, that kind of disappeared in Europe in the 19th century, right? So, Well, in fact, it, like, yes. I mean, the Industrial Revolution wiped out the small proprietors, right? Yeah, yeah but... And enclosures in England wiped out the yeoman farmers as well. Yeah, course, well, industrialization yeah. in America wiped out the yeoman farmers as well and the small proprietors. You now have corporate America, but you've yeah, kept the, the ideology. Yeah, but the dream never died. Yeah, so, but why doesn't your dream die? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you really should. There's a, there's a really great podcast called The Dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, season one 
is about multi-level marketing. Nice. Okay, it's like a huge scam, but what? But millions of Americans fall for it, right? The dream is self-employment, right? Mm -hmm. You'll be free of the boss, you'll run your own business, and you'll get rich uh -huh. and be able to retire early. That's the And dream. the only form of self-employment available is ripping off your neighbors. Well, they don't see it that way, but yes, in practice, that's what it amounts to. But the truth uh -huh. is that it's not just you're ripping off your neighbors, but you yourself are getting scammed, uh -huh. <laughs> right? It's, now, of course, we have not just multi-level marketing, but every other get-rich-quick scheme, like you know, investing in cryptocurrency, mm -hmm. where also you get scammed. But <laughs> right, people are Americans are constantly running after this dream of self-employment because, in fact, they at some level they understand that being a wage worker doesn't get you anywhere, uh -huh. right, for the most part. So self-employment seems to be the path to independence, to freedom. You, you're your own boss. That's the okay. dream. So, and it's never really left America, even as it has become less and less a realistic option. Right. So uh, this, yeah. this, is, this is my real question, because um, you have the kind of... Uh, independent producer free market utopia idea in both Europe and America. And then you have the Industrial Revolution, because uh, the reason you want that egalitarian free market libertarian thing is you hate feudalism. You hate being bossed around all the time and having to bow and scrape. So we'll have a free market. You have a free market that produces an industrial revolution, which produces massive inequalities, which is a new kind of feudalism almost. Now these employees are in thrall to capital, to their employers. Um, and so in Europe, they say, this is awful. Uh, I guess we'll do socialism instead because this whole liberalism, this free market stuff isn't working out the way we hoped. But in America, you guys just keep saying, no, 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 this is, we're just not doing it right. We need more freedom of the market. Um, yeah. and, and so here's, here's how it's evolved under sort of 21st century capitalism. Mm -hmm. So now we have gig workers, right? Oh yeah, you are independent. You're not. You're not. Uh -huh. right? Well, I was going to now ask you're about like this. An Uber yeah. driver, or you know, driving for DoorDash, something yeah. like this. Now the reality is, you still are under the minute control of the platform, which dictates a million and a half rules about how you conduct yourself. Uh huh. Okay, and you even have to take a certain number of rides like the the ideal is at least you have control over your own time yeah but more and more right you need to be accepting more and more rides for a company to make a profit so you don't you have less control over your time than you might think mm -hmm. and no control over your wages since it's really uber and lyft and those companies that determine how much you get and in some cases they even keep your tips uh-huh right <laughs> right so it's a lot less you don't really get to dictate your own prices as you would if you were an independent mm -hmm. proprietor and the same arrangements happen all across the economy so if right. you look say at the typical farmer raising chickens say mm -hmm. you know they're in a double-sided contract where they have to buy all of their inputs from some big ag company including the little chicks mm -hmm. and then they have to sell their output back to the same company.
They have to sell their output back uh -huh. to the same company. On both ends, the prices are dictated to them by the company they contract with. And they're assuming all the risks of, you know, bad weather or bird right. flu or whatever it might be. <laughs> right. They're taking all the risks and they're barely making it. And they have to follow the minute instructions of the big ag company about how to raise the chickens and, how, and the, the size of the sheds and uh -huh. that they're housed so, in and stuff. So, in fact, you know, in reality, they're, they don't have any more freedom than an employee. But it feels right because of the legal nature of the contract. Oh, you're your own. You're in business mm -hmm. for yourself. But in reality, they're still under the thumb of the big ag company. Right. So and, the independent so, farmers, the independent Uber drivers, they're. You are an independent contractor. You're an entrepreneur. Um, but in fact, that's just an illusion. And in fact, they're caught in this kind of like feeble, feudal web of authority on both ends where they're completely controlled. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Can we introduce a little bit of a shorter term historical dimension to this? So we talked about a little bit about, you know, how these ideas came up in, in the 18th century. Uh, and this dream has stayed alive in America, but it seems to me that in the late 70s and 80s, there was also a change, right? So this libertarian ideology, was it so strong throughout America's history? Or was there an ideological shift um, in the past half century that has made it even more than ever this way? So I think... There was an ideological shift against, you know, freewheeling libertarian capitalism that I mean, took you place. used to have unions is what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. So, <clears throat> uh, you know, a cataclysmic moment for capitalism was the Great Depression. Right. Right. And that brought in the New Deal, massive state intervention, all kinds of regulations of the employment contract, like the Fair Labor Standards Act which dictated that like workers actually had to pay, be paid uh -huh. in cash rather Sounds than like in script that could only yeah. be spent at the company store, say if right. you were a mine worker or some other factory town, right? <laughs> Give some workers a freedom, at least how they're going to spend their money so they don't have to spend it at some monopoly shop run by their boss. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, limitations on hours, maximum hours, overtime. Uh-huh. Right. So some minimum rules. wages, yeah. right? Workers got some rights, and you know, ultimately, the aspiration of the New Dealers was even to bring in what they called economic democracy by way of labor unions. Yeah. So labor unions peaked right after World War II, but mm -hmm. the truth is that the capitalist class always hated unions and they loathed the New Deal. And at least a certain portion of the capitalist class, right? right? And they started gathering steam really around the 70s. And you could see a major turn in the mid-70s. There's a mm -hmm. lot of other reasons for this. Post-war economic growth slowed down. Lots yeah. of things were happening, even in Europe. Rise of international competition. The energy crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> all kinds of things that were happening that weakened labor unions. They were already somewhat in decline, but a pivotal moment, of course, was the election of Ronald Reagan, 
Yeah. When uh, you had the air traffic controllers went on strike and he just fired them at all, just yeah. like that. And that basically sent a signal to corporate America that, that they, they could do whatever they want. To basically oppose labor unions full on. <laughs> and they went on a campaign that destroyed labor unions. So that vision of economic democracy that had started to develop in the New Deal was utterly destroyed. So now uh-huh. in the private sector, I think so it's what do you only mean by econom- economic democracy, which just uh, that is workers that having a voice in the way the firm okay. is governed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and labor unions affords a voice of sorts in right. that, right? Because they can negotiate their contracts and uh, which will in many cases mm-hmm. determine the conditions of work and, and not just, you know, pay. And so now in the private sector in the United States, only about 6% of workers are unionized. Mm -hmm. So, you know, unions are dead in the private sector, almost completely. And, you know, the public sector, you have more unions. um, Yeah. But but it's still very low. Okay, so New Deal and then... In the 80s, late 70s, neoliberalism starts, Reagan comes in, gives that a big boost. And what about now? Do you see another ideological shift happening? Because it seems to me that the neoliberal consensus is starting to crack up. Oh, yeah. I think that um, this libertarian vision of capitalism, which some people call neoliberalism, Mm -hmm. has definitely lost its sheen. (laughs) And, and another turning point, I think, was the financial crisis that started yep. in 2007. Lots of people went bankrupt, um, <clears throat> including people who had played by all the rules. We're not just talking about people who had no income and no job buying a house and then losing it. <laughs> right? Yep. I mean, there's a lot of people who, in fact, had been paying their mortgage steadily, and then they lose their mm-hmm. job and they lose their house and they lose all their savings. They were doing everything right. They were totally responsible, right? But the recession destroyed them. That happened a lot. And and so people started thinking, you know, this freewheeling capitalism where, you know, Wall Streeters, free market trading can bring down the whole system, the whole global economy, right? Maybe there's something wrong with that. And and so we've seen also with rising inequality, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and workers suffering under worse conditions. Uh-huh. So like under the pandemic for and during the pandemic under the Trump administration, Trump speeded up the uh, slaughterhouse assembly lines or disassembly lines, I should uh-huh. say. <laughs> right. And that created COVID hotspots because the workers had to crowd together yeah. more tightly. And then, then they're dropping dead. Mm. Okay, and, and you know, I mean, how much hazardous conditions? Well, are I don't know. Do you want rights with? or do you want freedom? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe you want to live, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so the arrogance of people who are basically can order others around with impunity, even to their deaths, mm-hmm. uh, just because they're employers over them, right? I, a lot of people are really angry at that. So the sheen is worn off. People are seeing the costs. Well, great. And thank you for the work you're doing in uh, hastening its demise. 
I wanted to ask you about another example in your book, because I think it speaks to this idea that it's not just poor material conditions, which are the problem, uh, but the humiliating, demeaning nature of living under private government. You had this example about an astronaut strike. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so that was a great case um, where on the um, space station, these I can't remember what year it was, but the astronauts were had to do perform a lot of experiments, which mm -hmm. was fine, and astronauts love to to do this, but they were being micromanaged every last minute uh -huh. of their work lives was scheduled. And they were even told like when they had to go to sleep and when their breaks were like everything was micromanaged and they yeah. were harried and stressed out and couldn't stand it. And so finally decided they're just going to turn off the radio. Right. So, nice. right, <laughs> right. Mission control down on earth can no longer communicate with them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. And and, <laughs> and then they turn it back on and they said, look, we'll do all this, but we're going to do it on our own schedule, on our own time. And we'll figure out mm -hmm. how to do it. You just got to put up with that. Now, luckily, they were many thousands of miles away <laughs> yeah. and they couldn't really be fired since, you know, they're out <laughs> in outer space. <laughs> they were in control of the space station. And so they basically just took over the whole operation and, and they completed yeah. all the work, all the tasks that needed to be done to fulfill these experiments. But they did it in their own way, on their own pace, at their own uh -huh. schedule. And they did it just fine. What they wanted was autonomy. They didn't want to just be micromanaged and bossed around and, uh -huh. and minutely monitored. They were That's saying, look, we're autonomous workers. We can do everything that is required. Uh -huh. But let us manage ourselves. I feel like I am super sympathetic to that view, and everyone hates being micromanaged. But if you take another example from your book, which is that in a lot of poultry factories and meatpacking uh, factories, people aren't allowed to go to the bathroom. They have to wear diapers. In one case, I think you said Nabisco, uh, the bosses told workers just to piss themselves. Yeah. Um, but it's now shocking. it's like, right, but like, <laughs> now it sounds like, you know what, being told by your boss to piss yourself is humiliating and shocking, but pissing yourself because of your own devotion to the cause and freedom is like a kind of autonomy. <laughs> <clears throat> so what is the key difference between the astronauts not being, why is, you know, what is the micromanagement isolate? What is the human good that they're lack of autonomy to decide how they did the tasks uh, eliminate? Well, I mean, that is a, autonomy yeah. is a kind of freedom, right? So, yeah, it but, is I mean, if they still have to do all the tasks. They want people to be free to trade away their freedom at work. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay, but maybe what you want is to be actually maintain that freedom at work. So yeah. and that's what co-determination can offer workers mm -hmm. who can't afford to like literally own their own enterprise and be their own boss directly in that way. Mm -hmm. Right? It gives them a voice in in how and how their work lives go. Do you see any practical hope for uh the decline of private government? Oh yeah, I 
I think workers are getting more and more pissed off. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think we do need, you know, workers need to organize. And to a certain degree, they are more and more. There's more strikes. Mm-hmm. There really is a shift. And, you know, it's it's the millennials who are realizing, wow, they're really screwed. Yeah. <laughs> right. All the wonderful things that were promised by the capitalist system, like they're not seeing it. Well, not for them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's that's changing things. There's just more organization. There's a lot of alternative forms of labor organization. So it's not just the traditional unions, which uh-huh. I think in many respects have become complacent and more distant from the workers, but workers self-organizing. Well, good. And I think on that note of optimism, uh, we could close the discussion of this book. But before I let you go, I was just wondering, um, what are you working on now? What are the projects that we might see from you in the near future? Oh, yeah. So I have a sequel to private government that I'm working on. I'm just putting the final revisions. It's called Hijacked. Go on. (laughs) how neoliberalism took the work ethic away from workers and how they could take it back. And uh, the idea, it's really a history of the Protestant work ethic from the Mm -hmm. 17th century to the present. And what I'm unearthing is by working through the history of classical political economy, Smith, Ricardo, James and John Stuart Mill, the Ricardian socialists, Mm -hmm. Marx, the Social Democrats in Germany, is I'm unearthing what I call the progressive work ethic. Okay. That is the pro-worker work ethic, which I think has been forgotten. Uh-huh. I like it. I will tell you, I'm a little suspicious of almost all work ethics, but I can't wait to read the book and uh, maybe get you back on to talk about it when it comes out. Um But for now, thank you so much for coming on, Elizabeth. Uh, It's been super interesting talking to you. Yeah. Oh, it's a pleasure talking with you. That is our episode for today. As ever, if you'd like to support the show, tell everyone you know about it, spread the word. And if you'd like to give us money, head over to patreon.com slash goodintheory and do it there. 